Welcome to Sports Weekly with Ayaz Memon. Hello and welcome to Sports Weekly. I am your host Ayaz Memon. I must confess, I'm really bleary-eyed. It's been a manic Sunday, as we all know. There's just been so much action in tennis and football, and uh, well, even before that, you know, I mean, the whole week has been so busy. Also, a lot of cricket. There's the Olympics building up, but of course, the dominant sport or the dominant event in the last couple of days has been uh, actually two of them one is wimbledon the other is of course euro soccer and the copa cup in uh, latin america which was played so two major football events a major tennis event and then of course we've got uh, india and sri lanka the series been deferred a bit because of covid the indian women's team doing rather well in england they won the second t20 we're going to talk about that the series is tied and uh, we've got Bangladesh beating Zimbabwe in the first test. Uh, it's an important win for Bangladesh just to recover from the defeats that they've had against West Indies earlier in the year. And then, of course, things are happening in the on the F1 circuit in the F1 sport, which my co-host Samil Arora is going to talk about. And of course, he will be joined by Mr. Fantastic. So, without much ado, let me welcome both of them onto the show. Mr. Fantastic, are you around? Are you there? Absolutely, Ayaz. Fifty percent happy, fifty percent sad because <laughs> four of the predictions that I made over the weekend have well gone half right. So that's not good news for me. But welcome, Samil. You've been harping about the fact that you did one better than me, and you have a seventy-five percent success rate. <laughs> yep, only one better. But the thought that I've been wondering about a lot in the last twenty-four hours is. I think England should be disappointed that the Euros were not decided on, say, something like which team had the most corners or which team had the most free kicks in the last match. And maybe that would have been the other option. I think so. Someone suggested they do it on the number of completed passes. I don't know how yeah, that. Yeah, number would of have completed gone. passes. Good idea. I think the ICC would approve of that. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, I mean, let's let's focus on the Euro Cup final. And you know, there's many a slip between the cup and the lip, and that's what seemed to happen with England. Everything seemed to be going right for them, and then finally, you don't. get your hands on the trophy and ultimately that's what matters so somel is a fantastic what really went wrong was it the fact that well they should have had maybe sterling taking a the penalty kick and not leaving it to somebody else who is more you know far more junior far inexperienced what really think do you think because for the major part of the match it seemed like you know england might be home Well, that's what the scoreline suggested for the longest time. Although Italy were unlucky to not equalize sooner. I mean, it was a dream start, wasn't it, with the Luke Shaw goal? But after that, for reasons best known to maybe Gareth Southgate and the rest of them, England went on the defensive. They, I think, were trying their best to keep the scoreline one nil till the very end, and that was quite literally playing into the hands of the Azzurri, who. have a very strong backline themselves and i think the early goal really shattered them so continued pressure might actually have helped england rather than go back on the defensive um more than anything though i think it was just choking and lack of experience of playing on the big stage on in big finals uh well they haven't really had a major cup final in many many years decades and so suddenly it's new for everyone there's no one to pass down the experience from from within and that could have been a factor that affected them what do you say somen i uh, i would have to say so when you consider the kind of squad that italy came up with and especially the two defenders bonucci and cellini they've been in so many finals together in fact all the way to the euros they didn't get dribbled past at least once not not one time did anyone actually take the ball around them 
That is how insane they were. And I agree with that. Perhaps in hindsight, of course, England should have attacked more. Maybe not let Italy get too comfortable on the defensive side because when they are comfortable on that aspect, they can really transform their midfield into more of an attacking unit. And that's what they did later on. But strangely enough, in that proper kafafal, it was Bonucci who ended up scoring that goal. And Bonucci, of course, as I mentioned earlier on, a centre-back for Italy. That that wasn't quite supposed to happen. But you're right, they didn't quite look like the same team England after that goal. I feel like they just folded inwards after that. And maybe that was the main reason why they couldn't quite capitalise on that. Again, one might say things should never have gone for penalties at the first place. England could have closed it out. Again, that's the power of hindsight, right? But when it comes to penalties... It was Gareth Southgate's decision. There's no need to say anything to the players and just imagine, come on, stop the racial abuse, stop all that saying that, oh, they're not good players because they didn't end up scoring goals. It's a penalty shootout situation. There's 90,000 fans screaming loudly at the Wembley Stadium. There's, I think, a few million watching worldwide as well. You can't begin to comprehend how tricky of a situation it is to be one of those players taking one of those penalties. And it's alright, it's totally human, right? Everyone makes errors. Some at the grandest state, some at the lower scale, maybe like us. I mean, we may end up missing our penalty shootouts when we go to the turf to play with our friends. But seriously, the kind of vile abuse that has come up online, it's been quite alarming. At the end of the day, we should just recognise they're humans, they're people. They end up making mistakes. And at the crucial moment, it was Italy who ended up holding their nerves. And that was just that, a battle of nerves right down to the very end. Absolutely. And Jordan Pickford, for everything that he did well, even the last penalty which he saved that gave England a shot at equalising again, he did his part. It's just, you're right, finally a penalty shootout is really a bit of a lucky draw. But let's also celebrate Italy's achievements. 34 games now without a loss, which in itself is quite staggering. And the fact that after the last disappointment, ever since management has changed for the team, they've only been on the upswing. They missed Qualifying for the 2018 World Cup, remember. And after that, to have turned it around in just about three years to become European champions, Hmm. that's quite a feat. Oh, genuinely is. In the last decade or so, Italy just felt like a shadow of themselves after the 2006 World Cup win. But this feels special. This feels right in a way. Even after Euro 2012, there was a slight feeling that maybe Italy can come up, deliver something special in the 2014 World Cup. But then after that, things just haven't felt the same until now. The rock solidity of their defence and just the way they've transformed themselves into a proper attacking side. They've made big names out of that team and that is something so, so special to see. Coming into the tournament, we just had to say that Belgium or Netherlands were the favourites. But that was only on paper. In terms of the way the team played together, I don't think you can have more deserving champions than Italy, who did it at the moment when it all counted. Absolutely. And England should actually take a lot of heart from this. You know, a first major final in many, many, many years uh, kind of sets them up up pretty well for next year's World Cup. Uh, They should be hoping. They really can hope. Now, it's not just another team that makes the quarters of a major tournament and misses out. They had a hand on the trophy this time. It was that close for them. So they should take heart. They should look forward and plan for next year. They've got the right manager, if you ask me. He's young. He gets the players. Let's just not talk about the fans. They're unruly. They're just, they're just ridiculous. It's it's unfortunate the kind of fans that England ends up. And we've all, I'm sure, seen a, more than one video over the last 24 hours about how their fans are reacting to the loss. It's, it's shameful. So the fans should actually look inwards, have introspect about their conduct and how it reflects on themselves, their team and the game. It's just not acceptable, everything that's happening. 
Ayaz, I'm sure you've seen a lot of this over the years in other sports as well. We've had incidents even in cricket where fans, I mean, most famously or infamously, the 96 World Cup semi-final where we all remember a teary-eyed Vinod Kamli walking off the pitch. Fans, fans have really not really done well for themselves here, have they? Yeah, and I think, look, there's a metamorphosis which has taken place. Now you find all, you know, all the recalcitrant types, the misanthropes, the guys who are bitter and angry all the time, all on social media. They become social media warriors. What we saw in football in the 1980s, 70s, to a little bit uh, in the 1990s, was hooliganism largely outside the playing arena, not in the stadium, a little bit in the stadium. And then, you know, it would it would erupt sometimes or oftentimes into violence and then it would fade. And then, of course, the countries themselves and FIFA and the football authorities stepped in. But we saw that also re-emerging in this match. You know, we saw the English hooligans barging into the stadium, breaking the turnstiles, breaking the barriers, getting in. And then post the match, venting all their anger against players of colour representing their own country, their own team. And this is something that, frankly, it reflects not just on the sport, but reflects on the politics of the country, the polarised environment which exists even in Britain. And I'm I'm afraid that might be true of a, a lot of the European countries that play football, whether it happened with England, it could happen with France, it could happen with several other countries. So this is becoming an endemic problem, which is, I don't know how anybody can handle this because you don't know who these guys are. They just they may be having pseudonyms on Twitter or Insta or wherever they are. But they create, you know, an environment and an atmosphere which can become so hostile that it's almost like a proxy war being fought against your own people. Absolutely. I mean, we've now got a situation where Boris Johnson and the England FA have come together and condemned this behaviour. I just hope they're able to find these people hiding behind their screens and actually prosecute them for what they've done. No matter how badly a player has failed, there is no reason to subject them to any racial abuse. I just think it's reprehensible. Well, that was what the action from Europe looked like. Travelling halfway across the world in South America was yet another blockbuster match. This was early Sunday morning, remember? And good news here for Argentina fans because they finally, finally broke the jinx, they have a major title, Messi's legacy is safe, hallelujah, all is well with the world. Ah. Oh yes, oh yes. It it feels like Messi winning an international trophy, it's not like a king capturing any empire, right? Like, it's, it's not something like that. It's more like an artist being conferred to an honorary title of sorts. It's just the cherry on top. It it no means would dampen his legacy and it would no means make it any less legendary if he hadn't won it. But this just completes him. It feels like things have finally come full circle. And, and now what I'm really confused about is what motivates Messi next? The international title is done. He's won all that he had to. Maybe, just maybe, the Premier League is coming next. Maybe that's mm. something for the next episode. But we have to Wait, focus on the match now. you don't want him to win the World Cup next year? He's not won that. Oh, one. yeah, there's that as well. Look, the small oh, matter yeah. of that, isn't it? Small matter. <laughs> exactly. We just can only beat 31 hope. other teams and that's all. Right. We can only hope. And how old is he now? How old is he now? How lo- is he getting along in years? Samil and fantastic, you see him? I think it'll be his last World Cup. Yeah, he'll be, he'll be 35, yes. Yeah, is he in uh, prime fitness and form? You think? 100%. 100%. Yeah. In fact, uh, with this win of the Copa America, 
many have backed Messi for the Ballon d'Or this year as well. And, and they're saying, I mean, how can you blame him? He's he's done so much on the club side. He's won finally an international trophy with Argentina. And every single year, if there's one thing you can expect, Messi to be phenomenal on the goal scoring and the assist side of things. I think they've got a real point here. But it genuinely feels like 2011 all over again, when India won the World Cup, it felt like Tindulkar's Cup. This one feels like Messi's Cup now for Argentina. That's a very big statement. and Yeah, but it's a great analogy. Absolutely. But if Roger Federer's age is anything to go by, Messi has another World Cup in him. He's just 34. <laughs> ah, exactly. But not, not, not very happy times for Neymar or for Brazil. And Brazil is going through a lot of problems, as we know, even politically, turmoil. And this is one of the events which a lot of people thought if we win this, it'll just bring the country back together again. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Yes, well, uh, Neymar still has a little more time. That Brazilian squad which turned up at the Copa was, to be honest, a very strong one. And it was just a moment of sheer brilliance that saw Argentina pip them at the post. Either ways, it would have been a fair result no matter who won. Just again, to put it on the record, I am an Argentina supporter. So I am very happy. And that was, well, that was 25% of my 50% predictions coming right. The point I was trying to make, Mr. Fantastic, is you know how much, what a massive role sport can play in how a country sees itself and reacts in certain crisis situations. You know, I mean, for instance, 2011 or 1983, you know, winning a World Cup just brings India together. Everything, every section, every division vanishes. We all come together in cricket. I mean, so likewise in football, Brazilians were looking forward to winning this tournament and tied over what seems to be a current crisis in their political and social life. It didn't happen, unfortunately, for them. What we've already discussed is the internal strife which exists in English society came to the fore because of a defeat. A win would have glossed over that, perhaps remedied it or mended it to an extent, but it didn't happen. Absolutely. Well, while the team sport events did dominate, there was yet another major sporting event that had caught everyone's fancy. And... There was the question whether Novak Djokovic can finally join the ranks of his colleagues, Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer, with 20 Grand Slam titles. And the short answer is yes, he did. He arguably today is the best player still active. I don't think even Nadal or Federer could beat him today, no matter what the surface. And 100%, I've got to agree. We saw this the last time out as well at Roland Garros. That, I think, was such a major turning point. When you beat Nadal at his own surface, yes, of course, age comes to everybody, but Nadal, nobody can look at Nadal and say, OK, he wasn't really at anywhere close to his peak performance. He was. Nadal was firing shots all the way through. Djokovic went out there and won. After that, of course, the matter of Pass was, let's say, slightly lower than Nadal, but he still sealed the deal right there. Even at Wimbledon, we, we were all building up the next gen on Sports Weekly. I mean, trying to preview talents like Sitsipas, like Berrettini, like, say, someone like Sonego. But at the end, experience counts so much. And, and there's one very important point that Djokovic said in his post-match speech that really rings very dearly in my mind. He said, the first couple of Grand Slam finals that I was a part of, they didn't really go well. But then something clicked after 2011. We're just waiting for that something to click for the likes of Sitsipas, for the likes of Berrettini, for the likes of Tiafo and more. I just can't wait to see that moment when they, at their full strength, having experienced a couple of Grand Slams, go against, well, what many would call the GOAT now in Djokovic. 20 Grand Slams and there's the real possibility of him doing the Golden Slam that we've been previewing all the way around. He's won three already this year. He's just on a roll. 
I must add something else he said in the post-match conference when this this question was asked of him, uh, Somil, specifically about the U.S. Open and then the Golden Slam. And he, he, you know, in his own way, he said, "I envision something like this already." That means he's already exactly. dreaming and imagining it <laughs> exactly. and working his way towards winning the Golden Slam. I think you know, I think what is happening with uh, Djokovic and tennis now currently is that he's intimidating opponents. Even if he's two sets down, he's not out. You're not sure that you can beat him. He just has this amazing ability to raise his game in, you know, crunch situations, crux points, crucial points, just raise the level so much higher that he just wins those points and then he overwhelms the opponent. Absolutely. The power of manifestation at work with Novak Djokovic. But uh, you're right, absolutely, Ayaz. I mean, when we saw the final yesterday, uh, he lost the first set from a position of strength, 5-2 in the first set. You kind of started imagining that this is going to be a quick game. But Berrettini stood up, came roaring back to actually win that first set, which is great credit to him and very heartening to see that the second first-time finalist in this year can hold uh, his head high on the big stage. And he and Tsitsipas probably... I can't wait for them to meet in the Grand Slam final. With Novak, though, he's always been looked at as the least favourite, as a slightly petulant guy uh, who's constantly looking for admiration and praise. But there are stories from the locker room, most notably Denis Shapovalov, who lost to Djokovic in the semi, saying that after the game, Djokovic walked up to him and said, I know how this feels. It'll get better. Just hang in there. Now, those are sort of words of wisdom that, and that's true champion behaviour, if you ask me. There's something I want to add here, and this is interesting because, you know, I'm seeing it a little more in a detached frame, from a detached point of view. So I think what we are seeing, Djokovic, you know, version 2, which has emerged in the last couple of years, is I think, apart from wanting to win titles and become the greatest ever, he also wants to be recognized and identified as a statesman for tennis, which has not been the accolade that he's got. So... Uh, He's not gone about it in the best possible manner. He's been a little clumsy, in fact. He's tried to form a rival kind of players group, which has not gone down well with the more more regular mainstream players, if I may say, put it that way. But he's making all these attempts, these efforts to be a light guy, to be in the vanguard of tennis players and what the the future of tennis holds. Because he's got maybe three, four, five years, we don't know, uh, ahead. But this is the stage when I think he's, he he also wants to be seen as a thought leader for tennis, not just as a not just as a champion player. Absolutely. So as far as fans go, it's going to be an interesting change of card, which we're starting to witness over the next couple of years uh, to see who fades out and who the new powerhouses that emerge will be. Also played over the weekend was Ash Party versus Karolina Pliskova, which was an amazing advertisement for the women's game. Barty reigning supreme in three sets. And again, I have to say it was a bit of experience and stamina that helped her overcome Pliskova. But she's been quite the story as well, having missed a large part of the last year or so, having actually played in the Big Bash Cricket League a few years ago, for her to stand here and win Wimbledon, uh, be the world's number one for a while now, she's quite an ambassador of sport overall. Genuinely is. Genuinely is. And and when you look at Ash Barty, you get... As I've been constantly saying, you get that confidence of the Aussie cricket team of the past that looked at, okay, I I can do it. And we saw that same level of commandingness yesterday. Not yesterday, a couple of days ago at Wimbledon. Again, time flies when you're a sports fan. 
I had some friends come over to watch the match and they never watched any tennis before. And the impression that they left with was, wow, this Ash Barty is really good because they saw how good she was in that third set. Plishkova was awesome. The way she fought back was amazing. But in that third set, the kind of confidence and the way Barty dominated the game was quite something. Again, and those wholesome stories. We've all seen that picture of Ash Barty as a kid winning a small trophy, but having that same grin. Here we are again, what, 20 odd years later, Barty having that same grin, except this time the trophy is that of the Wimbledon's ladies singles finalists. Amazing stuff. That, that really was such a heartwarming image. Absolutely. There's also this amazing story emerging of the junior boys yes. champion, Samir Banerjee, of Indian origin, but not being an Indian. Now, typically we tend to take these stories out of context and blow them up because he's of Indian origin, but... What do you say, Ayaz? How can India actually have its young champions or a champion in any of these major global sports? <laughs> Mr. Fantastic, we are large-hearted. We accept everybody and anybody as Indians, provided they have some, <laughs> some connection. <laughs> we appropriate them, even if, we, even if they are not, uh, you know, by nationality Indians. But more seriously, more seriously, I think tennis in India is desperately now in need of Charisma and high-quality players will go out and win some titles and shake things up a bit. I think it, the line has virtually ended with Rohan Bopanna of some consequence. Uh, I'm not talking of Leander and Mahesh in the men's section. And then with uh, Ankita Raina is there, but you know the big accolades you got or some titles you got or the trophies you got was with Sanya, who is now, at least I think, in the, in the winter of her career. So we need, at least now, in the age group of 8, 9, 10, 11 to look and identify talent who will deliver some you know some medals some cups some titles by the time they are 19 20 21 i mean you you can't have a situation i think today in the in the way tennis is played today of you know guys and girls who are 25 26 trying to win their first title it just seems almost too late you know so i think right now the need is for the tennis authorities in india to create a little excitement about the sport. You know, even the tennis establishment in India is so faction-ridden, so politicized that uh, it's not funny. And therefore, you see, there's not been what I call logical growth of the sport. When you look at what happened from Ramnathan Krishnan and Ramesh Krishnan to Vijay Amitraj and then on to Leander and Mahesh, that same momentum doesn't seem to be continuing. By now, we should have had 30-40 players who are there in the top 150. Perhaps, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but at least 8, 9, 10. And when we're struggling for that. So there is something seriously wrong. And unless that is improved, we'll be clutching at straws and looking at people whose names sound Indian or who are of Indian origin, two generations or three generations removed and say, you know what, we found somebody who can win titles for us. It's not for us. They're winning it for the countries that they are born in and live in. Absolutely. Well, let's hope that time's not too far away. We will have a bit of a show coming up at the Olympics, but honest answer is about three, four years to go before we can start hoping again because, well, the larder does seem a little bare right now. Moving on to a sport where the larder is definitely not bare, and that's cricket. We've had a bit of a setback in the Sri Lanka series with the outbreak of COVID in the Sri Lankan camp and the five-day postponement of the series. I really don't think that's going to change too much because uh, if anything, we will have fewer Sri Lankan players available and they will have to actually dip into their resources. Is that what it looks like, Ayaz? It does. I mean, in fact, Sri Lankan cricket is right now in the doldrums. We talked about it last week. 
and uh, they might actually welcome this little respite because then they can go and collect players again. Either players are unhappy, they are not signing the contracts, they are in confrontation with the board. It's not a happy situation for Sri Lankan cricket. The Indians, of course, are waiting, straining at the leash, especially guys who are waiting to make an impact and come into the World T20 side. You know, so they certainly want these matches to be played because that's the best way to prove to the Indian selectors that they are worthy of playing the World T20. And there are quite a few aspirants. Prithvi Shaw, Shikhar Dhawan, Bhubaneshwar Kumar and Shreya Sayyar. A lot of these guys who are looking to reiterate that they deserve to be in the, in the World T20 squad. So, yeah, and don't forget, of course, Rahul Dravid, the first time as coach, a lot of whole legion of Indian fans of Dravid and of Indian cricket are waiting to see how he manages his team and what results we can get. Absolutely. Meanwhile, the Indian women's team is uh, putting up a very, very strong show over in England after losing the first T20I. They came roaring back to win the second one. Shefali Varma top scoring with 48 and the Indian spinners and fielders causing an English collapse, claiming six for 31 in just about five and a half overs. And three of those were runouts. That's not bad. That's fantastic. In fact, I'll tell you, it's just been so impressive, the performance of the Indian women's team. First, they drew a test match which looked, I mean, they were in imminent danger of losing it. It seemed like all lost. But they managed to stave off defeat and through youngsters like Sne Rana, some debutants, Shafali Varma playing well. Then they, they did extremely well, I thought, in the ODIs. And all this, mind you, having played very little cricket in the last 17-18 months. And now they're, you know, one all in this in this series. They could well win this series. And that catch by, you know, which went viral. Have you Did you see that catch? Yeah. Arlene Deol? Absolutely. I mean, it was uh, it, amazing athleticism. Was amazing athleticism. I haven't seen, not that one needs to compare between genders, but even men's section, not just Indian men's section, but in the men's event of, of the sport, very few have taken a catch like this. This was absolutely fantastic. So there's a lot that the Indian team has done. Well, I think what is encouraging is that players like Harleen Deol and the Shafali Verma and Sneh Rana, they've come good. Mithali Raj, has been very consistent, not in the T20, he's not there. But uh, the only thing is, of course, I think they need to get a little more depth of experience as well as depth of talent in the top order. You know, Harman Preet Kaur has not been having a great tour so far with the bat, but uh, she's still got years ahead of her. But you need to start looking for replacements for people or players like Mithali and Julan Goswami now, not when you know they are virtually forced off the field because of age or seniority. Absolutely. Well, let's hope they can go on to wrap up the series and bring home a trophy. That'll be something. Meanwhile, elsewhere in the world of cricket, Bangladesh has won a test match beating Zimbabwe by 220 runs. Most interesting here has been the announcement of Mehmudullah's retirement right after a career-best 150. I mean, that was a bit of a shocker. What do you say, Yaz? Well, you know, he's been uh, talking about retirement. I think he retired before the series also. Then he was forced into playing this match or the series. So, he's been on the cusp of retirement for a while, Mamadullah. So, I suspect that had he, if he had made up his mind to retire and was kind of cajoled into playing still for a few months more or a few weeks more, he's decided that he might go when he's on, on top, having made 150 and won the match. Bangladesh were in, in serious trouble till he came into bat. Uh, and then he rescued the team with the bat and then created a platform from where Shakib and uh, Mehdi Hassan could win the match. The spinners could win the match. Uh, beating Zimbabwe. So, it's a, ultimately, it's a test win. And, you know, a win is a win is a win. Zimbabwe are not very hot on talent right now. 
or on experience. But the only way they can get experience is by playing test matches against whoever the opponent. I think there is a strong case that I would want to make is that for countries, the top five or six which are there, India, Pakistan, England, Australia, and certainly New Zealand now, South Africa, they should engage more often with Zimbabwe, Bangladesh, even Afghanistan as test-playing countries so that it doesn't shrink to a pool of five or six and then it remains there because that's not going to serve the cause of test cricket at all in the long run. Absolutely. Well, let's hope that the Bangladesh team is able to build from this and not just continue to lose momentum. They haven't had the best time in the last couple of years. Haven't, to be honest, justified their elevation to test status. Uh, and again, like like uh, like Sri Lanka, an establishment which is riven with uh, conflicts and confrontations and all kinds of things happening between the board, the players, the domestic uh, cricket is in a right royal mess. So, you know, these are issues that these other countries need to resolve. Much as we say that India and England and Australia should play against the smaller countries, but Sri Lanka and even South Africa and Bangladesh and Zimbabwe, certainly, they need to resolve their internal and internecine problems within the cricket establishments of their countries for countries like India and others to be enthused about going there and playing. Absolutely. Well, there was a bit of uh, more cricketing action happening over in the West Indies, where the West Indies now leads Australia 2-0 in the five-match T20I series. This is a white ball tour, by the way. Five T20s and three ODIs uh, scheduled. Aaron Finch is leading Australia and it seems that Chris Gale has set himself a target of coming back or rather not letting Australia come back with a trophy. Have you had a chance to catch any of these games, Ayas? I have actually. I've been tracking it quite, uh, you know, I'm quite interested because I think what has happened to West Indies' advantage in, in, a, in a sense even for Australia, they're approaching the World T20, they're getting a lot of practice matches. Not just practice matches, but competitive matches leading into First, the IPL, where these star players will be there, and then immediately after that, into the World T20. And the West Indies are looking like, you know, the favourite tag might not be misplaced on them. They've won the title twice. They've got a string of massive hitters, which, you know, which extends to numbers eight or nine. And not just that, I thought that perhaps uh, they had a huge problem in not having spinners of quality, but that doesn't seem to be the case. They've got uh, Hayden Walsh, who's come in, who's, who's picked up wickets. They've got Fabian Allen, who's doing well. And Australia is getting really harried and hassled because uh, despite chasing something like a, a modest score of 140, 148, they are struggling. They can't set a big enough total for West Indies to kind of run out of steam. So all kinds of things uh, are happening, not in favour of Australia, but a lot in favour of the West Indies. So, well, that's the cricket part. We're going to bring Somil back in. There's some interesting developments on the F1 circuits happening. Hey, Somil, what's this new speed racing business coming up? Are they changing the F1 format to a drag race now? Uh, no, it's sprint racing, in fact. So, there's a fun bit. We will now have a 30-minute, 100-kilometer sprint race on Saturday. This will happen... Sort of as a replacement for qualifying. So the three-part qualifying system you see on Saturday will be pushed back to Friday. That'll still happen. But the grid order from that will determine the grid order for the sprint race. And now the sprint race, basically, if you win, you get three points. If you're second, you get two. The third place driver gets one point. And the order from that race determines the starting order for the Grand Prix. Sounds complicated on paper, but it's actually quite simple. And you might be wondering, well, what's the need? The current format is fun. It's very entertaining, very enjoyable. Why bother with changing? 
The answer is quite simple. Formula One wants to bring in more contextual F1 sessions because on Friday, we've got two practice sessions right now and another third one on Saturday. So F1 said, well, they're fun, but what would be more fun is having a 30-minute fun race on Saturday and then we maybe push the three-part qualifying that everyone loves to Friday. So that now, instead of two must-watch sessions, there are now three over the race weekend. Again, there are criticisms, like some drivers may not want to take the extra risk to pass because essentially, you might just be artificially inflating your grip position in the longer race, you will still fall down. But that's just a criticism of it. Maybe we could see some drivers go come can't see in 30 minutes and we never know which team or driver it may favour because it's just never happened before the teams and drivers have had to tackle a race with only 30 minutes in mind instead of the regular 1 hour 30. So expect some crazy moves or maybe just the right old procession. The beauty of it is my opinion or your opinion on this is just as good as the opinion of those in the paddock. It's a total blank page for everyone and this time at the British Grand Prix will be the first time we get to see it ever in history. Again, history in making in Britain, of course they paid extra for that honour to host the sprint race first. But seriously, I think it has the potential of being a slight game changer on the TV and the commercial side because now everyone has to tune in both on Friday and Saturday. I quite like the idea. So previously, the rules stated that you'd have to kind of manage your tires moving into the uh, main race. Is that going to carry on for the sprint race as well? Because uh, you would expect more wear and tear because of the sprint. No, no, no. So what happens basically is now there was a rule previously about tire management and everything. And it said that if you qualify, of course, in the three-part session in the top 10, whichever tire that you used in qualifying to will be the one you start the race on. That rule is gone. In terms of tyres right now, you get five sets of soft tyres, the softest ones on the grid, for the Friday qualifying. You get one set of tyres. It can be soft, mediums or hard. Most teams are likely to use softs for that one. But you get a free choice on whichever tyre compound, but only one of them because there's no mandatory pit stops in that 30-minute race. You get to choose that. And then on Sunday, there is a free rule as well. You can choose any two tyre compounds. No need to save, no need to manage, stuff like that. And even that rule that, oh, if you're Mercedes and Red Bull, you have to go out there in qualifying too and maybe just set a lap time with the mediums because you want to start on those tyres in the race tomorrow. All of that complicated stuff is gone. It will just level the playing field now on a strategic sense. All the top teams are not compromised. Maybe we could see some more creative strategies coming up on to play on Sunday as well. It's got us thinking, and that's the best part. The sport should get you thinking. It should get you excited. should take you into new uncertain circumstances, and that's what it is doing right now. It would be fun to go out there, be a pessimist, and say, oh, it's not going to work already. I know the drivers are not going to take the extra risk, but wait and watch. Who knows how things may go? Well, let's hope it just adds to the excitement, and now I'm looking forward to the F1 race this weekend, given all the other action is over, and we will be able to rest before this action kicks off. Well, I'm done for the week. Thanks so much for having me again, Ayaz. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Mr. Fantastic. Thanks, Somil. Always a pleasure having you guys here. And look, I mean, uh, we've got past the major two major football tournaments. We've got past Wimbledon. But there's a lot of sporting action coming up with the Olympics starting on July 23rd. And then about 8-10 days after that, the India-England Test Series begins and so on and so forth. So it's virtually sports unplugged in 2021 and you'll find a lot of that being discussed and debated and of course uh, we'll have our own little powers Mr. Fantastic Samuel and me with our own points of view on what is happening in the world of sports so please join us again next week same time on the same show Sports Weekly 